The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Realizing Improved Outcomes in HER2-Positive Gastrointestinal Cancers, New Evidence and Practical Guidance with Targeted Agents. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash NEB860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, welcome. Uh, it is my pleasure to be here today to discuss about a hot topic, not only in gastric cancer, but also colorectal cancer, that is the role of HER2 her overexpressed tumors. So uh, we are really honored to welcome in Barcelona Dr. Elena Janjigian. I have pronounced it Thank well. You. Yes, yeah. perfect. Um, focusing on colorectal cancer, it is true, as I mentioned before, that uh, it is not included in the determination of the HER2 status in all guidelines, although it is in the NCCN guidelines, but um, there is a proportion of patients that do present, uh, whose tumor present an overexpression of HER2. So, uh, in certain cases, it has been correlated with a worse prognosis, and the, the, um, its predictor effect uh, regarding the anti-EGFR treatment strategies has been a matter of discussion until recently. In the case of uh, gastric cancer, and uh, Yelena, later on, you can, see, you, you can tell us if you agree with these uh, results coming from a real-world data study. In this study, it was published that nearly more than a third, uh, 30% of patients were not determined for the HER2 status when they were diagnosed for gastric cancer, and an important proportion of patients did not receive a frontline treatment with HER2-targeted therapy, and a similar situation in the, in the later on uh, treatment. So uh, it is quite uh, intriguing, and uh, I think it's an interesting also matter of discussion. So um, here we have a European uh, experience uh, focusing on HER2 that we would say that maybe the percentage of the, the determination is slightly higher. And it seems that for those patients in which the determination is performed, they seem to have better outcomes in terms of overall survival, uh, probably because of the use or, or the, um, the incorporation, uh, the earlier incorporation in the treatment of HER2-targeted therapy. So, uh, regarding the approval, uh, we know that uh, equity is, uh, is uh, also uh, a matter of uh, discussion worldwide, uh, but we know that we have approval by the FDA for both trastuzumab and also trastuzumab deruxtecan, uh, particularly in gastric cancer. And uh, in that sense, for me, it's again, it's a pleasure to have in Barcelona Dr. Janjigian to discuss about the role of her to express uh, gastric uh, cancer. Please go ahead. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. It's such a pleasure to be here in Barcelona again in person and to talk to you about my favorite topic, which is HER2 positive disease. It's really, there's been a lot of activity and data that I can update you on. So in gastric cancer, more so I would say in breast than in breast, HER2 positivity is a complicated topic because often it co-occurs with other uh, family members of the HER2 superfamily. So we know EGFR very well, which is HER1, and certainly HER3 and HER4, although understudied um, and underrepresented in gastric cancer, is also a major topic because up to 30% of uh, gastric and esophageal tumors, adenocarcinomas, have HER2, HER3 alterations as well. So 
you know, once uh, we have the activation of MAP kinase pathway uh, downstream, it's very difficult to overcome both primary and acquired resistance to trastuzumab, and that's why the field in our disease has stalled, because just targeting HER2 more effectively, as was done in breast cancer, has not really helped as much in GI cancers. So in gastric cancer in particular, and we have the um, gastric story here on the bottom, and the, based on the TCGA and the, and the TOGRA data, and then the breast cancer uh, story uh, here. In gastric cancer in particular, as you see here by these uh, three uh, you know, colors of HER2-3 uh, her, uh, her plus overexpression in each particular tumor, there's a lot more heterogeneity. In other words, you'll have a small focus, a cluster of HER2 positive cells, and then the rest of the cancer biopsy, there's either low expression or indeterminate expression. And in breast cancer, you see a lot more complete staining, strong staining. And so, obviously, if you have only focal positivity or uh, positivity in a small sample, repeat testing of even the same biopsy sample or a different metastatic site may present a different result. And that's what we see uh, in the literature, and we presented this uh, from our, one of our trials, is that the heterogeneous expression leads to uh, inconclusive testing or discordant testing in the community and between central testing, certainly for clinical trials. So proportion of uh, tumors that test positive varies depending on where in the GI tract you test. We know that uh, proximal and G-junction tumors and distal esophageal tumors are slightly higher percent of HER2 positivity, and it's up to 30%. We also know, as shown here, that diffuse subset of gastric cancer is almost never HER2 positive. It's only 6% positivity. So, and overall, if you look in the whole spectrum of the disease, it's up to 15 to 20%. You know, often if you talk to our colleagues in South uh, Korea or Japan, because distal gastric cancer is more common there, the positivity rate is closer in the upper teens, 15 to 20%. In my clinic, because I see so much, and probably your clinic, if you practice um, in the West and Europe, is G-junction esophageal adenocarcinomas are so much more common. And the rate of positivity there is as high as 30%, especially in moderately to intermediately differentiated tumors. So I'm trying to convince you that it's a issue you have to test. I mean, it's, you know, this real-world data is quite sobering. And we see it from, for example, from phase three Checkmate 649 study, that up to 40% of cases worldwide were HER2 unknown. In other words, they were never tested. Some of it, I think, is access to trastuzumab uh, because it's, in, if in your practice you are not able to get patients HER2 directed therapy, you understand why you wouldn't test them for it. So, what about IHC versus FISH? So, immunochemistry appears to be a um, stronger, more um, robust biomarker. There, it's a little tricky because obviously you can't assess the level of amplification, right? So, what we know is that if you have IHC3 plus positive tumors, close to 95% of those cases will be also FISH positive, right? Biofluorescent and cytohybridization. FISH testing takes longer. It takes three or four days, sometimes a week. Uh, IHC can come back quicker, and so IHC is where we typically start. If you have a 
uh, IHC2 plus fish negative patient, those typically don't do as well on first line trastuzumab at least. And we'll get to the point about ADCs and, and low expressing tumors later. So the uh, t testing paradigm, at least in my institution, and I would love to hear what you uh, uh, do in your practice, is that we start with immunohistochemistry. The threshold for calling something positive in gastric cancer is a little lower than it in breast cancer. So it can be 5 to 10% a cluster of cells. Um, because, And we know because of the nature of the gastric epithelium, it can be focal or cytoplasmic staining. And sometimes reading the fine print on the pathology uh, sample helps you understand if the patient, how do positive are they. And having fish also helps because if you have high level of amplification, the ratio of what we look at, the gene and the centromere, if you have high level of her amplification, those patients tend to do better. And you can see here from the TOGA study, the uh, forest plots here, that if you have no um, amplification and it's a fish, you know, IHC plus tumor, uh, the benefit is low. And certainly if you have a high expressing tumor, um, so patients that you and I would consider her too positive in the clinical practice, which is IHC three plus, or HC2 plus fish positive, the median overall survival for to receive trastuzumab with first line chemotherapy is 16 months. So, you know, we're very excited now for her to negative disease with Checkmate 649, where we passed the one year threshold, you know, with nivolumab and chemotherapy. This is 16 months uh, median overall survival for her two positive tumors. It's very important to test for her two and to understand how likely is your patient to do well. What we also know, and I mentioned this early on, is the intrinsic trastuzumab resistance is a major factor in a G-junction and um, esophageal cancers in particular. Remember, the TCGA told us these are chromosomally unstable tumors. Syn tumors have many amplifications and alterations. And if you have co-occurring amplifications in RAS, PI3 kinase mutation, other activation of MAP kinase signaling, Targeting HER2 is not going to really have a durable and meaningful survival. So this is what we showed. We just did NGS on first-line patients who were getting chemotherapy with Folfox and trastuzumab in standard practice. We published this in Cancer Discovery um, several years ago now. And it developed the hazard ratio for benefit uh, for patients. So in gold, you see here... Uh, hazard ratio of 0.42 if you have a very high level of amplification by NGS. And remember, if you have a high level of NGS amplification, that means you really are HER2 positive because you take all the cells in the tumor and extract the DNA. So it's, you know, if you have a high level of amplification, that means there was more cells with amplification in each individual biopsy. So high level of amplification and otherwise wild-type RAS PI3 kinase, and no med amplification or EGFR, those patients do really well. Their PFS was much more meaningful. If you have HER2 positivity by clinical assessment but no positivity by NGS, those patients didn't do as well. They're on this purple line, and you, know, you see here the hazard ratio is on the wrong side of the forest plot. It's as if they're not HER2 positive. So what we've been doing wrong in GI is that we kept going after the breast cancer paradigm. We kept targeting HER2. 
we're saying, okay, well, trastuzumab works, let's do trastuzumab and lipatinib or trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And when you have, uh, you know, alterations that are beyond HER2, just going after HER2 was not sufficient. There, were, there are other, you know, uh, inhibitors on the market, and I mentioned the pertuzumab story. Margituximab um, certainly, you know, has also has done okay, pretty good in breast, um, and was looked at briefly and was looking at in gastric. Uh, intracellular targeting with uh, both reversible and irreversible inhibitors had some, um, you know, activity. Uh, lipatinib failed. Uh, tucatinib is much more specific to HER2 and is now in development, uh, and, you know, we're waiting to see some of that data. Initially, it was um, promising. ZW25, certainly, the bispecific antibodies, um, the dual, dual targeting uh, is promising and is under development. And what we're going to talk to today is trastuzumab, deroxtecan, and some data on TDM1 and gastric cancer, and also this concept of dual anti-PD-1, anti-HER2 therapy, because what we're learning about, both in preclinical and clinical models of gastric and esophageal adenocarcinoma, is that overexpression of PD-L1 is actually a mechanism of resistance to trastuzumab, because it might be that in gastric cancer, trastuzumab works so better because of ADCC activity as opposed to just the HER2 activity. So Checkmate 649 covered the HER2 negative population, right? And it's FDA approved in April of 2021. It's now available in Europe and uh, in pretty much most countries globally. Nivolumab plus chemotherapy improved survival, but HER2 negative patients were mostly in this population um, and patients were not allowed to go on the study if they were HER2 positive. We know that in that population, PDL1 is um, somewhat predictive, but even in a HER2 negative or unknown population, more than 60% of patients have PDL1 overexpression. So 60% are CPS5 or greater, 80% are CPS1 or greater, right? So that's, that's that. So Checkmate 649 already changed practice. I was just showing you the median, right, for Chaz. Here it's 13.8 months for uh, intent to treat population, 14 months for the biomarker-selected population. So what is the evidence supporting use of immunotherapy in HER2-positive disease? Well, so um, in the interest of time, I didn't include the phase two data, but so um, when first we saw activity of immunotherapy um, in HER2-negative disease, we already at MSK had preclinical data to support use of dual anti-PD-1 and HER2 therapy on, from biopsies and, and so forth. So I designed a phase two study uh, in just single center, 37 patients with combination of pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab and chemotherapy. And what we saw is a double of overall response rate and survival. So with TOGA, the overall response rate was 47%. We saw 91% overall, overall response rate and over two year median overall survival in that study. And after we published it, almost simultaneously, the Korean group finished uh, phase two in South Korea that showed very similar results. So that's unusual to have East and West uh, data re uh, replicated so well. So with that, we, even before the phase two finished, uh, and it's interesting, in the phase two, PDL1 was not a predictor. In fact, PDL1 negative patients um, did a little better than PDL1 positive patients. And again, highlighting the importance that PDL1 overexpression may be a, a mechanism of trastuzumab resistance. So that's the primer. 
So we did this to Keynote 811, and the key criteria were just having her two positive disease. PDL1 was not a, uh, a selection criteria. So patients with IHC3 plus or IHC2 plus fish positive tumors, irrespective of PDL1 status, were allowed on the study. These were all adenocarcinoma patients. 692 patients were treated. Uh, this was a blinded study, uh, placebo controlled, uh, and the comparator arm had pembrolizumab, trastuzumab with oxaliplatin and capecitabine. I do think the choice of platinum matters. And so coxaliplatin clinically is well-tolerated, and it may induce dendritic cell presentation more so than cisplatin. So we used placebo and trastuzumab for the comparator arm. And what we were able to demonstrate is that although we saw 91% overall response rate um, in phase two, we saw 74% overall response rate in phase three. And because we were expecting high response rate, we used it as first interim analysis. And so the first interim analysis was positive, and based on that, the FDA approved uh, this, uh, this combination, and it's part of this standard uh, practice in the United States for first-line therapy. The overall response rate of difference of 23% we have not seen before in a phase three study. We're hoping that's going to translate to survival benefit. The data has not yet matured, but it will be presented shortly. But we also saw that a combination of dual anti-PD-1 anti-HER2 therapy increased the depth of response. So the greater than 80% reduction in tumor uh, measures was seen in more than um, 30% of patients, double than what we saw in uh, standard of care arm. And the regimen was well tolerated. So the question about PDL1 comes up, and what's interesting is that over 85% of patients in this cohort had high PDL1 overexpressing tumors, CPS1 or greater. And so because the low PDL1 tumors are so rare, there was only 21 patients. Um, the uh, confidence intervals are so wide. But this highlights, the, and based on the phase two data from both uh, America and South Korea, um, and this phase three data, that PDL1 is not likely not a predictor. We have high um, responses, and we're waiting for the survival data. Particularly because this regimen was so well tolerated, the AEs were pretty much equivalent across the grade three, four AEs before, between the two groups. Um, there was slightly higher rate of immune-related adverse events, but they were relatively well tolerated and minor. These were some of the other trials that are, so the Integra study was already presented and published. Um, uh, we have, you know, some of the other trials that were open, but now, are having to, you know, uh, reconsider what their primary endpoints are and the, and the um, updates. So we talked about early, you know, right, first-line disease. Now let's talk about acquired resistance. What happens? Well, I showed you the data that showed that co-occurring alterations happen in first-line setting, right, and that uh, drive primary resistance. And unfortunately, the longer you wait, the more of secondary alterations that you you know, uh, uh, the tumor gains. So it becomes noisier. More EGFR, more RAS amplifications, mutations, PI3 kinase, MET, and so forth. But one of the most important factors, and we showed this already in 2018, is that after progression on trastuzumab, with the outgrowth of the HER2-negative clone drives the resistance. So the tumor loses HER2. This was a patient that I saw in the clinic. 
he was actually consented on to go on one of my HER2 positive second line studies. And before going on the study, we uh, did a biopsy of the progressing liver lesion and the tumor lost HER2, it was HER2 negative. So we ended up treating him with um, paclitaxel romaserumab off trial because he was not eligible. So it's very important. One of the um, uh, key factors about HER2 positive disease or any biomarker selected population if you're going to target the biomarker, make sure you still have it. You can't go into the battle with outdated map. So what about second-line studies? What was the uh, consensus on it? Well, you know, I gave you some of the foreshadowing. Just targeting HER2, again, in a way that we've targeted in breast does not always work. The Gatsby study looked at uh, TDM1 against paclitaxel, which is an active regimen in gastric. Um, it was not even including ramasuramab, so it was, you know, should have been an easy regimen to beat, but it didn't. You know, there was no survival benefit. It was not inferior, but this was not an inferiority. It was a superiority study, so it was a negative study. So TDM1 did not change practice, could not do better than paclitaxel. Trastuzumab deruxtecan, obviously, you it's been a big, it's a good year for TDXD with all the breast cancer data and the plenary session at ASCO. It was, um, was really uh, groundbreaking work. So what we know about TDXD is it's a high-potency payload that has a irinotecan, a topotecan-like drug, so it's not um, a taxine. Irinotecan works very well in gastric cancer. It has a high drug-to-antibody ratio. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a humanized antibody that binds to the receptor, gets internalized, and then dissociated within the cell and kills the cell from within. Because it has such a high drug-to-antibody ratio, unlike TDX, TDM1, in preclinical models, it looks like it has a lot more bystander effect than other ADCs. Here you have the HER2-positive NCI and 87 cell, in the, uh, in the control and the HER2-negative uh, MDMB468 model. And so when you look at the TDM1, there was very little bystander effect. With TDXD, both HER2-positive and HER2-negative cells are impacted uh, with a dramatic tumor re regression. And I think, and, you know, data clinically suggests that this is the reason why TDXD succeeded in gastric cancer while other HER2-directed agents in second line failed. Destiny Gastric 01 was the first study that showed activity in this disease. It was a study primarily done outside of uh, Europe. It was a mostly Asian uh, study in South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. And there, there were uh, cohorts that looked at HER2-positive tumors and exploratory cohort that looked at HER2-negative tumor, and I want to show you both of the data today. So TDXD dosing is higher in gastric at 6.4 mg per kg, so it's higher uh, than breast. And that's been sort of a trend in gastric with trastuzumab also and ramasuramab that we see that PKs in gastric can be trickier and maybe the tumor burden or other metabolism factors that, you know, um, sometimes to reach the same PK, uh, a little higher dose is needed. Um, and the patients were randomized to, uh, against physician's choice uh, treatment. Uh, these were heavily pretreated patients. In Japan, paclitaxel romaserumab was given uh, routinely, so they already had taxanes. Um, so it was either a or taxane as physician's choice. And then for exploratory cohorts, patients were used IHC2+, FISH negative, or IHC1+. The other interesting part, part about the study, they did not mandate 
biopsies at trastuzumab progression, right? Because this was third-line patients. There was nothing else for them to get. But they conf confirmed HER2 positivity centrally based on archival sample. So HER2 positivity was confirmed at some point during the patient's course, but not necessarily at the time of trastuzumab resistance. And that's uh, an interesting point that you should remember. The overall response rate, so remember with um, baclitaxel romasurumab in second-line setting in gastric, overall response rate is about 25%, right? Here they got in third line, it's a Japanese and mostly, um, you know, Asian study, so patients tend to do better in general, but still, 42%, that's pretty good. Um, it, you know, it was good enough to get into New England Journal of Medicine, um, so uh, if it means anything. So versus 12%, 12% uh, overall response rate. So in third-line setting, that's what we see. 12% is actually pretty good. You probably, in America, you probably see a lot less. And what's really important is the median OS of 12.5 months. Again, this is uh, Asian cohort of patients. They tend to do better, but still, that's, um, the survival curve separation is very impressive. So based on this, um, the FDA actually was so excited about it, they approved uh, trastuzumab direct stecan in America in second-line setting after trastuzumab failure. So you don't have to wait till third-line. There's a huge attrition, right? In America, we see that only about 40% of patients get it get to second line. So if you wait to third line, you're going to lose most patients. So, you know, it was a little bit of a bold choice and made clinical trial development actually difficult because, you know, obviously if you have a standard of care in, in, in second line, you know, that's what patients want is her to direct the therapy in second line. Um, but, you know, it's very patient-centric decision. I understand that. What about cohort one and two, the exploratory cohorts? So the HER2 low, and you'll hear uh, from Elena about the, uh, uh, the HER2 low colon, but here we have 36.8% uh, IHC2 plus in ish negative, tiny numbers, 19 patients, but it's interesting, um, and 19%, um, only four patients responded in IHC1 cohort. But if you think about it, if the response rate otherwise in you know, third or fourth line setting is, you know, less than 10%, that's, that's not bad. Um, and these are the waterfalls. So, well, what about the U.S. and the Western population? In parallel, one, even once the FDA uh, approved the study, uh, the use, uh, we, we had a phase two single arm study, um, and this was a, you know, Western population study. It was mandated to be second-line patients, and they man we mandated a biopsy at trastuzumab progression, right? Slightly different patient populations because since it's a U.S. and a Europe study, these are mostly G-junction tumors where, um, you know, again, there's more co-occurring alterations, there's more RAS amplification and so forth, so noisier tumor, while in gastric, in Asia, it's mostly distal gastric cancers. This was a very well done study. It was, you know, important for um, the company to do it that way because getting everyone to get a biopsy before going on the treatment was a paradigm shift in gastric cancer. Although it's done routinely in lung, it's not something that was done before. 6.4 mg per kg once again, and confirmed overall response rate is 38%. So, you know, some people would say, well, it's a second-line study, and you confirmed HER2, you know, wouldn't you expect a higher response rate? Yes and no, because G-junction tumors have these co-occurring alterations. And imagine, just by making it this third line, you already declare yourself a slightly 
better tumor biology and maybe more addicted to HER2. Um, and in second line, the heterogeneity factor still exists. So these are sort of the waterfall plots side to side. The median OS for um, Destiny Gastric 02 was not yet uh, presented, but it did meet its primary endpoint, which was based on efficacy, based on uh, overall response rate. Median PFS actually looks um, identical, 5.5 months, 5.6 months, highlighting the biology of the disease in um, U.S. is trickier and it's harder to do, which, um, again, points to the fact that if we wait till second or third line setting, it's harder to help our patients. I think targeting HER2 most effectively in a, and with combination therapy in first line is probably the best way um, to get patients uh, to do well. The uh, side effect adverse events profile with TDXT in second or third line is slightly different, also Asia versus the West. In Asia, this was a later line therapy trial, so they were more heavily pretreated, right? So the bone marrow suppression, platelet count, anemia, and neutropenia was more of a factor. In uh, U.S., in my experience using this drug, and I've been using it for several years now, there's more GI toxicity, more nausea, vomiting, uh, more LFT abnormalities. Um, bone marrow is not as big of a factor because we use it in earlier line. What patients and clinicians need to understand, this is chemotherapy. It's not immunotherapy. I think people expect it to be a designer drug that, you know, they're going to feel great about, and they feel like chemotherapy patients. Um, immuno, uh, in, uh, interstitial lung disease uh, is not as big of a factor in GI tumors as it was in lung or breast. The ILD risk is probably in the single digits or like 7 to 10%, depending on which cohort you look at. Most of the time... If you stop at grade one or two, right, asymptomatic, just radiographic findings, it's not a, a problem. Um, very few, so on Destiny Gastric 01, there was no grade five events. Destiny Gastric 02, there was one grade five event. So close monitoring, and what I tell my fellows and junior faculty is, Look at the scan yourself, read the, the whole report, not just the impression, because these small findings of ground glass opacifications, the radiologist may not realize that they're important, right, because they're minor and they're not diseased, so they may not even put it in the final impression. But the GGOs, ground glass opacification in patient on TDXD can be very serious findings. So just look at the scans yourself. So what about the definitive study? How do we get this drug? In? So in Japan, it's only a, 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 you know, approved in third line. Um, in, in, in Europe, you, you don't have it yet. And that's the reason you know, why Destiny Gastric 04 actually helped write this study. And it was go going to open in the U.S. And then the FDA approved it in the U.S. So we can't even, you know, we don't need it in the U.S. So the FDA is very enthusiastic and it's good, but it makes sometimes having definitive trials a little harder to do. So um, TDXD uh, was randomized in the study against standard of care, which is paclitaxel rumasirumab, right? And its study is ongoing. I think it's an important study. So if it's open near you, um, I think, you know, some uh, centers struggle with it because a biopsy at confirmation is important. Destiny Gastric 03, for those of you who saw uh, my talk yesterday, I'll give you a, a brief, again, uh, repeat. So Destiny Gastric 03 is a study that um, we designed and opened a while ago. It's now we have over 200 patients enrolled. 
Um, the purpose of it was to, you know, keep cytopine or 5-FU is the cornerstone of all GI tumors, right? So in, if we were to take this regimen to first line, it's important to be able to show efficacy and safety with keep cytopine. So we created these different cohorts. We're focused now on first-line cohort with keep cytopine um, and TDXT combination, and based on Kino 811 data, also in combination with immunotherapy, um, with pembrolizumab or tifrolimab. And what we saw is we know from previous experience that patients who have heterogeneous tumors don't do um, as well. And so for the Destiny Gastric 03, we did not mandate central confirmation of HER2 before patients went on to receive therapy, but everybody needed to have HER2 testing after, you know, they went on centrally. And so it's only 44 patients, the initial biomarker assessment. What we saw, again, there's about 20% discordance rate between central and local HER2 testing, highlighting the importance of uh, central testing for large phase three studies. I do believe that because those 20, or you have to power, enough power to assume that these 20% will be negative or discordant, and those patients won't do as well and will dilute your delta, right? Uh, what we also found is that tumors that have IHC2 plus uh, fish positive tumors are the most likely to be discordant um, because of the focal positivity. Furthermore, as expected, not surprising, but very high percent of HER2 positive tumors in first line setting are PDL1 positive. CPS1 or higher was seen in 85% of the population, further supporting the use of dual combination in the setting. Um, and again, suggesting that it's likely a mechanism of uh, intrinsic resistance. So with that, in the United States, we have uh, pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab as an approved regimen. Uh, most people and most patients actually started to request it after the phase two data came out because it was published in Lancet Oncology and everyone knew about it. So it was very actually hard to accrue even to the phase three. Um, it's a re relatively easy regimen to give, and immunotherapy is available for her to negative disease, so it's now available for her to positive disease as well. Trastuzumab direct stecan is used after trastuzumab failure unless the patient has a clinical trial option. It's very difficult to now randomize to non-HER2-directed therapies if you have a comparator arm. So most trials like that struggle in the United States and don't accrue well. We do biopsy with trist uh, before the patient goes on to second-line therapy, and if the tumor is HER2-negative, um, circulating tumor DNA is uh, an option as well to check. But if the tumor is HER2-negative, use of TDXT in second-line setting is not recommended. So the summary is, um, you know, immunotherapy is now available in first-line, both for HER2-negative and now HER2-positive disease. Prembolizumab, trastuzumab with chemotherapy is um, hopefully will become a standard once we see the survival data for worldwide. Um, because immunotherapy is used so routinely in first-line setting already, it's, it's been accepted in the United States. For HER2-positive disease, you know, use, and again, we didn't have a chance to talk about it, but maybe we can talk about it in case discussion. Circulating tumor DNA is helpful to assess. What we see from our trials is that if you have high level of herb 2 amplification in the plasma, those patients tend to do more, um, you, to do better on, with progression-free survival and overall survival. And loss of HER2 can be assessed only in patients who are truly um, ctDNA uh, secretors. So 
If you have a patient that you didn't check baseline CTDNA and then you checked it at cycle six of therapy and they're CTDNA negative, it's not helpful because you don't know if they ever had the CTDNA, right? So don't do that. Um, but, you know, for MSI tumors and, C- and HER2 tumors, I do you like to use CTDNA as a mechanism of understanding where is the resistance, how likely is the patient to have durable response. What we see from our data at MSK is that if they clear CTDNA at, you know, three or six weeks, or even a little later, they're going to be okay probably for over a year, two years on first-line therapy. If they don't, you have to plan ahead. It's not going to go well, and you have to think about what to do next. I do still biopsy, even if CTDNA does not show RB2, because sometimes there's just enough, not enough amplification to show it in the plasma, and sometimes we get HER2-positivity in the tumor then. If they're HER2 positive in second-line setting, trastuzumab directs TCAN is the preferred approach. But I mentioned to you that now we have Destiny Gastric 03, which is what we use in first-line setting. Um, it's trastuzumab directs TCAN with capecitabine or 5-FU and pembrolizumab. So if you have that study open, please help us <laughs> to finish it, girl. It's, it's almost done. So um, this is a case discussion that we were going. We brought to you. This is a 70-year-old patient who was diagnosed with stage four gastric adenocarcinoma. She presented with disease uh, in her lungs. Um, she has good support network and uh, remains active and independent. Functional status is excellent. Uh, one on biopsy, you hit the jackpot. She's HER2 positive. Um, which and also has high level of PDL1 overexpression by um, CPS of 20. So, uh, what would you do for this patient? Would you recommend frontline therapy with chemotherapy plus trastuzumab? Would you do something else, or would you give her pembrolizumab, chemotherapy, um, and trastuzumab together? So, hopefully, you said pembrolizumab. I mean, if if it's not available in your um, area, you know, hopefully, it'll, it'll be coming soon. So I guess the other question, and it's a little bit of a trickier question, what would you do in the same case if the tumor was PD-L1 negative, HER2 positive PD-L1 negative? Do you think, you know, in this case, um, it's uh, inappropriate to use pembrolizumab? What we see from the phase two data and other data preclinically is that what drives the benefit here is the HER2. You're not, you're augmenting the HER2 anti-tumor response in ADCC of trastuzumab with pembrolizumab. So it's not about CPS per se, it's about HER2. Um, and so uh, in my experience, the depth of response and the duration of response is much better if you add TRAS plus pembro together. So she was, she's done well for a long time. I guess we didn't indicate it, but let's say she was on therapy for two and a half years. And we've had, we have patients on the initial phase two um, that are still cured, and I started that in 2016. So these patients sometimes are harder to take care of because they get so, um, they forget they have stage four disease and, and, and their expectations are quite high. So unfortunately, Madeline um, progressed in her, um, in, and she's now you know, feeling okay, but not great. She's having some cancer-related symptoms. And you convince her to have another biopsy. Let's say she has a liver metastasis, so you biopsy. And luckily, her tumor is still HER2 positive. So, um, you know, her functional status is uh, she's feeling tired, but she's still functional. Uh, what would you give her? Uh, would you consider trastuzumab, direct TCAN, and second-line setting? 
uh, put her on a clinical trial, perhaps, um, or other options. So in our practice, we do have TDXD and clinical in standard practice. And again, if you wait till third line, these patients become frailer and it's harder to get them through treatment uh, for bromine suppressions, but other clinical factors as well. So um, the practical points on safety and efficacy. So first line, you know, Keynote 811 uh, regimen is uh, pretty well tolerated. I would say practically it's a little tricky sometimes, and I'm sure you see this with Fulfox and Nivolumab as well. If they bump their liver function tests a little bit or they, you know, have minor diarrhea, it's hard to understand certainly whether or not this is immune-related or if they just have mild LFT abnormality from oxaliplatin. What I would do practically is just hold the treatment and recheck the labs in three days. If the LFTs are already better, it's not immunotherapy, right? So immunotherapy, immune-related, uh, transaminitis does not fluctuate like that. Um, so just, it never, it never is, there, remember, this is stage four disease, do no harm. So just hold the therapy, and if they're getting better, you can probably resume everything together. If the LFTs are continuing to climb up, I would start um, solumedrol or, uh, or steroids at one mix per kg because it's probably, if it's grade two or three, it's probably immune-related. Um, other practical points, immune-related endocrinopathies, you can treat through, so hypothyroidism, um, even diabetes, if it's well-controlled, uh, you can just uh, replete um, thyroid synthroid or give them insulin and continue to treat. Adrenal insufficiency, you know, although it's very rare with immunotherapy uh, and is mostly related with ipilimumab, uh, I do see it uh, with this regimen, adrenal insufficiency. And so you, if your patient is all of a sudden very tired, um, can get out of bed, you know, check early AM cortisol and ACTH, and that's a very um, easy way to know if they're adrenal insufficient. With trastuzumab direct stecan, the factors, the major thing you have to watch out for is immune, uh, interstitial lung disease. The exact mechanism of ILD is not yet known. We don't know the factors that make people more likely to get it. Um, in gastric cancer, you know, in our experience, in, in the data in lung and breast suggests that the earlier lines of therapy, the ILD risk is lower. I think that's part of the reason in grade, you know, if you monitor grade one, two ILD uh, on scans and you're able to use these drugs, you can get the patient through um, safely. Monitoring and, man uh, and managing nausea is um, a factor in our patients. I, I find in the United States, at least, the rate of grade three nausea is um, what makes people, you know, uh, uncomfortable. And uh, so giving them delayed emesis regimen, amen, decadron often, you know, fixes it and they do okay. And with that, it's a, it's a pleasure uh, to, doc, to introduce Dr. Les to talk to us uh, about colorectal cancer, HER2. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Janjigian. Excellent presentation. Later on, we will have some time to, to address your questions. So um, I have to say that in colorectal cancer, we don't have that amount of data that you have in, in gastric cancer, so the situation is worse. But even if worse, the situation of precision medicine metastatic colorectal cancer. But we are trying at least, um, and we, we will try, we'll try during the presentation to go through this particular uh, area, metastatic colorectal cancer. So uh, we know the interplay that have the EGFR receptors and the fundamental uh, hallmark that represents proliferation in, in the surveillance of metastatic colorectal cancer. 
And particularly, it's important to stress that hep 2 protein has no known ligand. This is in interesting, and no, not everybody knows about that. But it's the preferred dimerization partner for the other hair uh, to hair family receptors, and that is particularly important in colorectal cancers. How, when we have also in colorectal cancer a hair to amplification, we have a downstream uh, signaling of the MAP kinase pathway, and then we have uh, a sustained proliferation and finally survival of the cancer cell. So. Um, about HER2 in colorectal cancer, we, don't, we know that it's not a prevalent alteration. Less than a 5% of our patients will have a HER2 overexpression. We know that this molecular aberration is enriched in RAS wild-type tumors, and it has not been described differences between sex, uh, uh, something that, for example, is different for the VRAP-mediated colorectal cancer, that it's more prevalent in women. It's more common also in left-sided colorectal cancer, and it has been also uh, described that these tumors uh, used to present a particular pattern of metastasization, and commonly we can see in these patients brain metastasis. The role of HER2 in colorectal cancer as a biomarker um, it has been described, it's controversial regarding the prognosis effect. It has been pointed out that it could be a bad prognosis factor. And regarding its role as a predictor of response to anti-GFR therapy, that's also really controversial because we had some data about the lack of efficacy of anti-GFR treatments in this particular population, but we have also data coming from the CalGB trial in which what we see is that patients that indeed had a HER2 overexpression did obtain a higher benefit of anti-HFR treatment. So at this time, but I, and, uh, this is one of the questions that indeed we have received from the virtual audience about if we need to avoid the anti-HFR treatment in metastatic colorectal cancer with a HER2 overexpression, uh, we could say that probably not. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, there's no guideline that uh, recommends to avoid the anti-HFR treatment in this particular uh, population. Uh, also, a particularity in colorectal cancer is how we determine the HER2 overexpression is quite different from the breast cancer and gastric cancer. And indeed, the HERACNOS criteria has been described and have been included in the guidelines for our pathologists to do the test. And as you can see here, it's quite different. And what, uh, the, the, the main difference probably is the threshold of the cutoff uh, of the HER2 overexpression that it's particular in the case of uh, colorectal cancer. So, uh, again, it's, uh, it's a, a difficult illness to treat first because it's not widely um, adopted the determination of the HER2 status in the frontline setting. Uh, as I mentioned before, it, is, it has been included in the NCC guidelines, but for example, the ESMO guidelines do not include still the determination of HER2. And uh, as I mentioned, the, the particularity of how to address this particular tumor and the available uh, targeted therapy for this tumor, it's also uh, it's not clear. And it's, uh, the equity is also different depending on the areas and the country. Another thing is the role of HER2 mutations in metastatic colorectal cancer. Uh, also in this case, we don't have a clear idea about its role, neither the prognostic effect or the predictive effect, uh, not only regarding the anti-GFR therapy, but also the HER2-targeted therapy. So regarding the HER2 testing, uh, when and how to determine this molecular aberration, here you can see a screenshot of the NC
and guidelines in which, in which uh, upon the diagnosis of metastatic disease, the recommendation is to uh, test the HER2 amplification, but it is not included in the ESMO guidelines. Um, it is true that it has been published uh, a SCAT scale, the ESMO SCAT scale, in which uh, HER2 is considered a biomarker of level 2 for metastatic colorectal cancer uh, because of the implications that would have to select these patients to be recruited in a clinical trials. But as I mentioned before, in Europe, we still don't have uh, an approval for uh, targeted therapies and the, the role that these targeted therapies play in the therapeutic armamentarium of metastatic colorectal cancer is not uh, well established. So uh, here is about the how. How are we going to determine the HER2 overexpression? As I mentioned before, the, the HER2 positivity in metastatic colorectal cancer is quite different from other solid tumors like breast and gastric cancer, and now has been uh, the, uh, adopted the RACLES criteria that indeed was already validated in more than 1,000 patients. And uh, here we have a scale with an staining from zero to three. And again, the importance here is the threshold used to, for the, the cutoff and the definition of HER2 positive or negative. So about the, therape the therapeutic aims, you know that we have uh, several clinical trials and drugs that have been uh, uh, evaluated in metastatic colorectal cancer. Again, is an important limitation, the lack of the, the knowledge of this biomarker from the very beginning, from the, the, the frontline setting. And this is important because uh, if we believe uh, the, um, the data about the potential bad prognosis of this molecular aberration in metastatic colorectal cancer, if we wait to do determination in the second line or in the refractory setting, we may lose some patients that could have a benefit to be included in this particular clinical trial. So it is very well known the results of the RACLES trial evaluating trastuzumab, labatinib, also my pathway trial in this case with the combination of trastuzumab, pertuzumab, also promising results and impressive results from the Montagnier trial, in this case with combination of tucatinib or the Triumph trial that evaluated the combination of trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Here in this slide, and I'm not going through uh, all of these uh, clinical trials because we are uh, here today to focus about uh, new drugs in, in this particular tumor. Here you can see that the inclusion criteria may uh, differ for, uh, for some clinical trials. In the majority of, the, of cases, the population was restricted to KRAS uh, and NRAS wild type tumors. In some cases, it was required, it was, uh, required for the patients to have, to have a tumor BRAF uh, wild type. And also the criteria for the diagnosis uh, may have some variations depending on the clinical trials. But it's important to stress that the Destiny CRCO1 trial evaluating trastuzumab deruxtecan uh, had two cohorts, as it was mentioned before, uh, for those patients who were uh, HER2 low, as you will see uh, later on. And the, the difference in this case is that we did not find any type of efficacy for these patients, but the patients that uh, were truly uh, HER2 overexpressed. So trastuzumab deruxtecan has been uh, excellently uh, described uh, before. It's a novel therapy, a humanized anti-HER2 monoclonal antibody that has a particular uh, feature, and it's a payload ratio that is higher, and that makes easier for the drug to be uh, um, to, to arrive to the tumor. Uh, just uh, just say that. So uh, maybe that's why in colorectal cancer we may observe a higher activity of uh, of this particular drug. 
and it represents also a paradigm change in what we expect from developmental therapeutics. So here you can see the study design of the CRCO1 destiny trial focused on metastatic colorectal cancer. These patients uh, need to be diagnosed of an advanced metastatic uh, colorectal adenocarcinoma. With a, it was required a central confirmation of the HER2 overexpression by the reckless criteria. These patients need to be RAS and BRAF uh, wild type and uh, they must not previously receive more than two prior regimens of therapy. So these are not heavily pretreated population, and that's why uh, it's important, as I mentioned before, to have the status of HER2 from the very beginning, because once you, the patient is progressing, you are prepared to offer in a rapid way uh, an option for these patients. Particularly in these in this clinical trials in which um, a central confirmation is required regarding the biomarker to be included in the study. So uh, also it's important to note that uh, these patients uh, could have uh, previously been treated with an anti-HER2 uh, therapy, and this is also quite important, and again, the relevance of the, the higher payload of this particular drug. And uh, at the time point that this trial was developed, we had also data coming from the gastric uh, cancer studies, and those patients who have history of, of interstitial lung disease or it was suspected interstitial lung disease were excluded from the study. So as I mentioned before, we have three cohorts in this study, cohort A for those patients who were truly HER2 overexpressed uh, metastatic colorectal cancer patients, and then we had other two cohorts, B and C, for uh, the type of HER2 low metastatic colorectal cancer. The primary endpoint was a confirmed overall response rate. So here you can see the features uh, of, uh, of the patients, more, more or less uh, well-balanced between the, the different uh, cohorts, so, although it is true that we have just 15 patients and 19 patients in cohorts uh, B and C. You can see that 75.5% of patients were HER2 overexpressed, that are the patients that were included in, in cohort A, and 100% uh, of the patients were uh, previously treated with uh, two, uh, one or two, li two lines of uh, chemotherapy. Here you can see the results in terms of efficacy and uh, response rate. You can see that in our case, uh, uh, previously Dr. Yanjian uh, discussed about the, um, a, a, a small proportion of patients that did present a response rate being HER2 negative, but in this case, we, we saw a 0% of response rates in our patients that did not have HER2 uh, 2 plus or 1 plus. So in this case, the behavior is really different from other tumor types, of course, very different from the breast cancer uh, scenario, but also different from the scenario, in this case, we see no activity for these patients. In the case for uh, the truly HER2 overexpressed metastatic colorectal cancer, we, we saw uh, excellent responses, in particularly in refractory metastatic colorectal cancer with a 45.3% and, and, and a disease control rate of uh, 83%. Here you can see the representation of the forest plot, and you can see the majority of the patients do obtain a benefit either in terms of response rate or uh, a stable disease. And if we take a look to the subgroup analysis, uh, we can see how 
uh, the patients that do obtain a benefit with this, uh, with this drug are the patients uh, who had a tumor with a HER2 overexpression. But again, important to say that these patients were, uh, um, were patients that in case they would have been treated with a targeted therapy were allowed, for in, in uh, focus on HER2, were allowed to be included in a clinical trial, and that's a particularity. In terms of progression-free survival and overall survival, again, the benefit is confirmed for HER2 overexpress uh, tumors with a median PFS of 6.9 moles, but it is huge in the scenario of metastatic colorectal cancer, and 15.5 moles for those patients in terms of overall survival. If we consider other particular populations that are also um, uh, patients who present uh, low-frequency molecular aberrations, like the case of BRAT-mutated tumors, more or less a similar population, because these patients, uh, when they were included in the, in the BECON trial, were patients that could be treated in the second or in the third line, patients with bad prognosis, and indeed the results uh, in terms of overall survival and progression-free survival, treating them with targeted therapy, uh, it's not such as we are observing here. So that's why uh, the key message is that uh, the role of HER2 as a biomarker is crucial. And from my point of view, the sooner we have the information, the better for the patient because we, we can be ready to offer a targeted therapy, although in the scenario of a clinical trial or maybe if accessibility, um, I recommend a treatment for them. So in terms of safety, it has been uh, also presented before, no differences compared with uh, other tumor types. Um, it's important to see that uh, the pneumonitis is, uh, and the interstitial lung disease was also observed in the Destiny CRC01 uh, colorectal cancer trial, in which what we see is that um, Eight patients presented uh, the, this, this adverse event. In, in, three, in, in three cases, the event was fatal, and you, you, we can see that the, the median time from uh, the appearance, it depends on, it's, it's really uh, different between the, the, different, the different patients. Uh, so it is really, really important to consider that this is an adverse event that can happen. It's important to monitor these patients uh, along the treatment, and once we identify this potential treatment combination, start uh, as soon as possible treatment with corticosteroids. So, um, also, like in, in the case of uh, gastric cancer, uh, the dose of trastuzumab deruxtecan that was used in the CRC01 colorectal cancer trial was 6.5 mg per gig. Uh, in the case of the Destiny CRC02 trial that now is recruiting, it's important to stress here uh, several differences. Uh, first, in patients whose tumor harbor a RAS mutation are um, allowed to be included in the clinical trial. Also, uh, in this case, uh, what the study is going to compare is uh, two arms, uh, arm one, 5.4 mg per kg, and arm two, the, the dose that was used in the Destiny CRC01 uh, clinical trial with the primary objective of assess the efficacy of these uh, two doses, being the primary endpoint that confirmed overall response rate. This 
this study is recruited, and, and for sure these results will be very interesting to see, particularly for those patients whose tumor harbors a transmutation, that it is not common in colorectal cancer. The majority of the patients with a HER2 overexpression will have a RAS wild-type uh, tumor. But we, now that we are starting to perform this NGS testing from the very beginning, and we have the possibility to have the information of uh, all this biomarker, sometimes we can see this coexistence, and it's important to assess also the efficacy of the treatment in these particular tumor types. So, regarding the role of uh, HER2 in other GI malignancies, we have evidence from other solid tumors, like uh, biliary tract tumors, or, for example, other clinical trials that are recruiting for all solid tumors type of basket trials in which the inclusion criteria is the HER2 overexpression. And we have very nice data coming from some studies, like uh, the My Pathway study, for example, the trials testing margetuximab and fanidatamab that are uh, new compounds, the first one that includes an FC portion that generates ADCC, and the second one that has uh, two different um, links to the, to the HER2 receptor and maybe uh, can increase the efficacy of this particular treatment. So very promising the area of uh, this particular um, solid tumors. So, uh, Let's move to a clinical case. This is a clinical case of our outpatient. This is a 60-year-old female with uh, no relevant past medical uh, history. And this patient started in December of 2018 with a asthenia with a and a weight loss. Uh, the study was initiated and it was performed an endoscopy that showed a low-grade uh, sigmoid adenocarcinoma. The CT scan, what showed was the confirmation of a sigmoid tumor with liver metastasis from the very beginning. And in the PET scan, because it was considered just to assess the potential of resecability for this uh, patient, showed a possible bone lesion uh, at, um, at L4 that was strange for us, uh, considering that we uh, didn't observe any other metastatic localization apart from the liver, and we decided to perform a biopsy that did not show uh, tumor involvement in this particular situation. So we decided to give, to give the chance to the patient, and we considered this patient a, a stage four sigmoid adenocarcinoma with liver involvement. So we performed the molecular biology testing, and what we see is that exons 2, 3, 4 of, of both KRAS and NRAS were wild type, also exon 15 uh, of BRAF were wild type, and this was an MSS tumor. So after discussing this case in the MTD, the first treatment option for that patient was a frontline setting with Folfox in combination with Panitumumab that she started in January of 2019. After four cycles of treatment, this patient presented a partial response. Also, she obtained a, clinical, a rapid clinical benefit with the treatment. And after 10 cycles, uh, we observed a confirmed partial response, and that's why uh, we repeat a PET scan considering the possibility to go for a surgery. You remember that we obtained a tumor biopsy of, the, of this bone lesion that was negative, but here you can see that uh, we did not observe any alteration in the next PET scan. So it is really suspicious, but again, uh, sometimes this is a real case, and sometimes in the clinics we need to take decisions, and we decide to give the chance and the option to the patient, and finally we decide to go for a surgery. First, the primary tumor was surgically removed, one tumor, and then uh, later on she went for the liver surgery. 
in which uh, all the disease could be resected. And after that, the patient had some complications with the, with the treatment and uh, we follow up here. You remember that the total of uh, cycles received was 10 cycles of Folfox in combination with panitumumab. Okay, so um, just as a reminder, the surgery was in December of 2019. And then in May, 20, in May 2020, so five months after, we diagnosed a recurrence uh, of the illness. It was a, a, a recurrence with high tumor burden, with liver, peritoneal, and bone involvement. So it seemed that that bone lesion was true. And we started at that moment for feeding combination with bevacizumab uh, after five cycles. Unfortunately, the, the patient presented progression disease. And uh, the first um, treatment that she received in that setting was radiotherapy. Uh, she presented with pain at that location. And we decided to go for an NGS testing to screen the possibility to offer the patient uh, an inclusion in a phase one clinical trial. Um, maybe here you can say, okay, you may have a suspicion about the HER2 status of this patient, but remember that the patient had an excellent response indeed to Folfoxpanitumumab. So not always it's easy to have a suspicion about the potential HER2 uh, status of the patient. So uh, the fact that the, a patient responds to anti-HER2 therapy does not necessarily mean that uh, um, we, we um, so I mean, uh, the fact that uh, the, a patient has a hair tumor expression does not necessarily mean that these patients are not going to respond to a combination of chemotherapy plus anti-HVR agent. As I mentioned before, that was the conclusion of the CalGBS uh, study when assessing the efficacy based on the hair 2 status. So what happened with the patient? We performed the NGS testing and uh, we performed the test in both in the primary tumor but also, also in the liver sample uh, of 2019 and we found a HER2 overexpression by immunohistochemistry. Um, the NGS testing, the, we perform an NGS testing in FFP at, at the HIO that includes 450 genes. At that time point, we had the option also to perform a liquid biopsy in the context of a, of a research project. And we found a mutation on, in TP53 very, and also APC, very common in colorectal cancer. Mainly 90% of the tumors will harbor these mutations. A beta mutation. We also observed in liquid biopsy the HER2 amplification and uh, also the confirmation that this was an MSS tumor. So here the patient had the option to be included in a clinical trial with a, HER2, uh, with a dual HER2 blockade. After three cycles of treatment with an excellent tolerance, the patient improved in terms of uh, clinical benefit and also the radiological assessment showed a partial response. Although after six cycles, so a total of six cycles of treatment, she presented a progression of the disease. So uh, from this clinical case, uh, I'm, I wonder what would have happened if we had incorporated the HER2 directed uh, treatment before in the medical history of this patient. Um, it is true that we may have suspect uh, this situation because of the evolution of the patient, but not always is obvious and not always is easy. And that's why, from my point of view, it's important to perform the test from the very beginning. 
So these are the take-home messages from, the, uh, from this case. So for this particular patient, as I mentioned before, uh, earlier her to testing would have been optimal. I think so because we did also had at that time point clinical trials for, uh, for this patient in earlier lines of treatment. The early confirmation of HER2 amplification would have support so the earlier use of HER2 directed therapy and clinical trials testing trastuzumab or trastuzumab derupstecan based option could have been considered allowing for earlier use of HER2 therapy. Or, for example, in this particular uh, patient that was treated with uh, a targeted therapy, an inclusion in clinical trials uh, in which uh, the drug may have or may overcome the resistance uh, for, uh, for this patient would also have been an interesting uh, option. So, a summary and conclusions, uh, I think that it's a, it's a proof of concept in not only in colorectal cancer, but it also in tumors that uh, a better knowledge of the underlying biology of uh, the tumors have led us to move to the drug into the undrugable. Also, in the case of colorectal cancer and like the Birraf and Kiras paradigm, however, the best treatment strategies and combinations for each tumor type must be considered in the histological molecular context, and HER2 represents a novel therapeutic paradigm in colorectal cancer. Evidence favors so the consideration of HER2 as a therapeutic target in metastatic colorectal cancer, and I would say also biomarker, and, uh, and I think it's important and indeed um, we have seen before data uh, of the work that you are performing and at your side, Elena, about the drug development that must include other aspects such as pharmacodynamic assessment, biomarker analysis, and particularly in early phase studies, including dynamic designs to facilitate and accelerate the accessibility of more effective therapies for our patients. So uh, now we have uh, some minutes for, for some questions. Great. So um, question number one is uh, advancing uh, gastric cancer options in PD-L1 uh, positive and HER2 positive disease. Um, so a patient is PD-L1 CPS 20 and HER2 positive IHC 3 plus. But if you only have uh, full Fox Nevo or uh, first line chemotherapy plus trastuzumab, so checkmate 649 or the TOGA, but not, you know, Pembrotraz, um, what would you do in terms of um, efficacy? That's a great question. I, you know, I think this patient actually has a very high PD-L1 overexpressing tumor, right? Uh, maybe a CPS 80. Um, you know, we don't know what the right answer is. I would say there's a subset of tumors, and I've seen a few in my practice, and I anecdotally hear it from colleagues all over the world, that sometimes HER2 and uh, MSI actually co-occurs. So a patient like this just test for MSI, and obviously if the tumor is MSI high, I think immunotherapy would probably win. Um, for HER2 negative, to, uh, for HER2 positive tumor, my reflex is still to use uh, trastuzumab, uh, first-line therapy, and, you know, scan early, and maybe switch to immunotherapy. So for now, for HC3+, if you don't have immunotherapy in combination with trastuzumab, I would still use um, full fox trastuzumab or k-pox trastuzumab um, unless it's an MSI tumor. And although it's very rare, but MSI and HER2 co-occurs. I actually just um, have a patient in my practice with EBV-positive HER2-positive tumor. So these uh, rare instances do occur. It's very interesting uh, and suggests uh, interesting biology. Um, okay, another question. According to the data presented, not all advanced metastatic gastric G-junction adenocarcinoma patients are tested for HER2 status at diagnosis, at least in the United States. 
What are the major barriers to this testing? That's a great question. You know, um, that's globally, it's a problem, right? Not everybody's tested for HER2. I think there's a factor of nihilism uh, for gastric cancer. Historically, it's been a difficult disease to treat. Patients present and they're quite ill. They may not want any therapy. So that's probably one barrier is lack of knowledge. And also it's, you know, if you're not treating disease often, you may not realize what you need to do. And two, I think it, some of this data may be data quality because if the testing was done and then it you know, came back later on an amended sample or a pathology report, um, it may not be qual- you know, captured. Um, and three, you know, sometimes, at least in other parts of the world, trastuzumab is not, just not available. So as I mentioned, globally from Checkmate 649, 40% of tumors were never HER2 tested. Um, sent, uh, locally, so that's probably because they didn't have access to trastuzumab. When titrating uh, or treating patients with trastuzumab directs to TCAN, uh, uh, trastuzumab directs to TCAN, how often do you scan patients for interstitial lung disease? So when we treat patients with TDXD, you don't have to scan any more often than what you would do for, for disease assessment unless the patient is symptomatic or if they're having cough or any other issues, every two to three months. Um, usually I you know, give them, uh, so treatment is every three weeks, so I do either two or uh, three cycles and do the first scan at nine weeks. If there's a major response, you, know, you can do the next scan um, after three cycles more and so forth. You don't need to scan or do x-rays or do anything else. We don't do... Um, PFTs in advance, none of that has been really shown to be helpful. Just talk to your patients, educate them. If they have symptoms, they have to report them. And if you see anything on a scan, usually you will see something before they develop symptoms. So regular every two to three month scans is fine. Uh, when, uh, so that's, that was it. So do you uh, use, this is a great question, do you use FLOT, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and HER2-positive early stage disease um, based on, you know, the high uh, uh, path CR rate that was seen in clinical trials. Um, you know, in my ex- experience, on the, when the clinical trial data suggests this pertuzumab trastuzumab combination with FLOT is not an easy regimen, right? People have a lot of diarrhea and other factors. Ironically, path CR rate, we just saw a um, presentation yesterday, was actually not a predictor of outcomes, and nodal status is a better predictor. Uh, we from the U.S. have a negative um, RTOG 1010 study of, as you know, carbotaxel, trastuzumab radiation, didn't show improvement in outcome. So I don't use pertuzumab, trastuzumab, um, or her to direct the therapy in perioperative setting. I've had patients with you know, borderline, um, really advanced tumors that you could say are not all that easily resectable that I've given pembrolizumab, trastuzumab to with excellent response. Um, I think that regimen is well tolerated. Uh, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, um, I don't use. Um, we, of course, just finished accrual to FLOT plus map study. This was a Matterhorn study. So I think for these patients, you just have to put them on a clinical trial. How long would you keep a patient on trastuzumab? That's a great question. It comes up a lot. And if um, so after new, um, after newly uh, diagnosed liver metastasis uh, and gastrectomy. Um, so I tend to not stop her to direct the therapy until progression. Um, I think some of these patients, uh, you know, I've had on for five years plus. 
Um, you know, now that we have ctDNA, if you know the ctDNA was positive and they absolutely cleared it and radiographically there's no evidence of disease, you could consider stopping it. We have changed the biology of this disease with these newer regimens. Um, and occasionally, in very select population of patients, if there's a persistent primary left in place, but the metastatic disease is gone, and it's been years later, we do take out the primary. I think it improves progression-free survival and maybe overall survival. Um, but in short answer, I don't stop. If they're doing well and the you know, risk of cardiac toxicity is very low, just every time you scan the patient, do an echocardiogram as well to make sure their EF is not re reducing. Um, and just keep going. Um, okay, and this is a really good question. What is the future of HER2 PDL1, uh, HER2 PET scan? Um, so we have a, a trial where we developed HER2 PET um, to look for heterogeneity of disease. Obviously, it gives you more of an advantage um, to be able to visualize the tumor and the metastasis at the same time instead of doing the biopsies. And what we saw in our um, trial, and this was imaged public close to 40 patients, um, is that more than half, 70%, 80% of them had some sort of heterogeneity in the uptake. In other words, if the primary tumor has very high uptake, SUV of 15, the metastasis, some of the metastasis are negative, some of the metastasis are positive. And actually, in with Pembrochas study, we did it pretty regularly on patients, and the heterogeneity predicted the duration of benefit. So the lesions that were low P, uh, PET scan uptake didn't do as well with HER2-directed therapy. I think it's a very useful tool in, in clinical trial development. It's not all that practical in, re in the real world if you don't have a cyclotron and can't radio-label trastuzumab on a regular basis, but it's a cool tool to... to image this heterogeneity. We've now developed a pdl one specific PET scan. So these functional imaging tools are very helpful to help you know, understand the mechanisms of resistance and imaging. Thank you. In the case of colorectal cancer, I think we have lots of questions, but I think we have just, uh, we could make two groups. Uh, we have mainly two questions. The first one is um, the biomarkers that we should test in the frontline setting of metastatic colorectal cancer. We all agree about exons 2, 3, and 4 of KRAS and RAS exon 15 of BRAF. Uh, MSI, uh, for sure, it's a, a biomarker that we need to test from the uh, frontline setting. And about the role of HER2, my personal opinion is that, yes, we have to test uh, the biomarker in order to better understand how uh, that patient will behave. And the second question, indeed, was very related with this first question. In the case that you, will ha you would have the result of the HER2 of overexpression in the frontline setting, and the patient has a KRAS and RAS BRAF wild type tumor, uh, are you going to avoid the anti-GFR treatment strategy? In that case, uh, the evidence that we have, it's not concordant. For some uh, clinical trials, uh, we don't see a benefit of adding anti-GFR treatment to the chemo backbone, so, but the difference uh, compared with other treatment strategies, is that it's not harmful. It has not been described a detrimental effect 
of adding anti-EGFR therapy to patients that are her to, with tumors HER2 overexpressed. But as I mentioned before, data coming from the CalGV trial that it's, uh, uh, the, it was possible to evaluate the, the status of the HER2 overexpression in an important number of patients did not show these, these results. And indeed, those patients who had a HER2 overexpression seemed to offer additional benefit to being, treat, uh, being treated with uh, anti-EGFR treatment strategy. So is not enough uh, to avoid the anti-GVAR treatment, so go ahead. Uh, we can do that. Probably it's not harmful for the patients, and probably for, them, for, for some patients may be helpful indeed. So uh, with this, uh, Yelena, thank you so much. Thank I you. think we all have learned a lot. It's incredible the data that you have in gastric cancer and the, the research project that you are conducting. Congratulations for all your work. Thank you to all of you for your attention, and thank you for uh, all, of the, the, all of you that you are connected uh, virtually. So uh, thank you so much, and enjoy the rest of the meeting. Thank you so much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NEB 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated.